0: So this uh, evening, I would like to continue a little uh, to look actually at uh, emptiness because this is some, some subject which is um, often talked about in uh, the Korean song tradition. So I would like to look about it in different ways. And so uh, one of the main texts In the Korean song tradition, which is recited all the time, which is chanted, which uh, is quite popular, and it comes from the Mahayana tradition, but very likely it might, that short version, the Heart Sutra, might have been invented by the Chinese. And then everybody thought, this is a great idea, so then it became... Kind of part of the tradition. So you might, some of you might be aware of this text because one of the famous phrases of the text of the chant is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. That's one of the kind of uh, things that often uh, people uh, hear about or know about. And so, in a way, what does it mean? Form is emptiness? emptiness is form. So does it mean that all form is empty? Does it mean that emptiness does not exist? So if all forms are empty, then you could say everything is empty. But then if you go on to say emptiness is form, then emptiness, doesn't exist. So in a way what is being talked about here? What is this concept of emptiness about? Because often kind of the concept of emptiness become a little kind of quite reified, and you have this impression that there must be some mystical emptiness somewhere you need to experience. And then it goes on to say or the part of the Heart Sutra. For this reason, in emptiness, there is no form, no feeling, no perception, impulse, consciousness, no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And so often, uh, the Sun tradition would present itself as quite, like, based on this concept of emptiness which they will see then as not being so much possibly in the early tradition. But personally, I think if you start with the early tradition, I think then it's kind of like there is a development, a movement based on it. Because you find exactly the same wording in one of the early sutta, which is called the Kasaka Sutta, and where the Buddha says where no eye exists, no forms exist, no sphere of consciousness, and contact other eyes exist. So again, very much the same, in a way, negation. No eyes, no ears, no contact. But then the Buddha finished the discourse by saying, what they speak of is not mine. And I think here, it might give us a clue about what the emptiness is about. Is that it's not about some kind of mystical emptiness, but it's more about identification. And that's why in, you have this patriarch, which is interesting, is uh, Nagarjuna, who was a great Buddhist Mayana philosopher. And he's considered important by the Mayanists, by the Tibetan, by the Zen people. So in a way you have this um, Buddhist philosopher which is considered as really important by many different traditions. And that's what he says about emptiness, as translated by Stephen Batchelor. <laughs> Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. And so here he's pointing out that what does it mean to be empty? And so he has this, if I find it, the definition. I might not find it, so you won't have it. But his definition of emptiness is that nothing exists independently of what forms it. So I think here we can see what is the point of this idea of emptiness. Instead of positing some mystical, something we need to find at some point, isn't it more about emptying? And then, if it's about emptying, what we're left with is not nothing. But what we're left with is what I call creative engagement. And so the image that came to me was every day, the washer-upper, thank you to the Bodhisattva, the washer-uppers, they are kind of, they have, we have these four plastic buckets full of cups and bowls and uh, plates. And so the plates, generally, I mean, everybody tried to be good and eat everything on the plate. But they're still little encrusted of a little food or a little this, little that. So, I mean, if we did not have the washer-uppers, they would just take the plate and put it back. But would we want to kind of... Mm. <laughs> because the plate is not empty. I mean, the plate is fairly... I mean, there is not much in it. But there's still something. There is some residues which has not been washed. So then the kind washer-upper clean all the plate, all the bowl, all the cups. And then they are empty. And because they're empty of any residue of anything else, then that emptiness can be filled with something else. And we can put tea, we can put soup, we can put food. And so in a way to see that the idea of emptiness, is actually to see the dynamic process of life itself, of our organism itself. That's really, in a way, it's about that. So on one side, you have the emptying, and on the other side of that emptying, you have the creative engagement, And so that's what I wanted to, to look about, to kind of see, what is it we are emptying on a retreat? Because as we sit in meditation, and you have thought, and you have sensation, and you have emotion, and you hear sound, and you feel, well, this is not empty. No, I feel a sensation. I am experiencing an emotion. I have a thought. I hear a sound. I mean, we heard the boing of the door. Something definitely happened. So it was not empty, but it's empty of self-existence. The wing of the door was dependent on many different things. Very likely the weakness of the joint and something else happening to kind of help it, to finish it off, you could say. So you have all these elements And to me, this is actually a retreat. Of course, it's an opportunity to cultivate emptying, also to experience it, but also to experience and understand the opposite movement of grasping, of identifying, and to see how does it happen. To me, that's what is so fascinating, that part of the process, is really to see that. That's why you have a great uh, Zen master, Japanese Zen master Dogen, who said, the way of the Buddha is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. But in a way, before the emptying, there is also that part of to know ourselves. And to me, one important part of this kind of questioning, this awareness we develop in meditation is to see how do I grasp and what happens when I grasp. Because I think that's where they're trying, when the Buddha says, it does not belong to me. And so it's like, we are this organism which encounters the world. So we have this, we come in good contact with inner conditions and outer conditions. And again and again we seem to kind of in a way do two things. One is to say this is me, this condition this is me. Or we grasp and identify with a condition and then proliferate around it. And to me that's what is very interesting, to see what is emptying about. And so the emptying is not saying nothing exists, that's why it's emptiness is for. But it's saying, thing exists, there is function, there is process, do I need to identify with it in a certain way? Because, of course, it's me who experience it. I mean, nobody is experiencing your pain in your back. Nobody else is experiencing your thought. Nobody else is experiencing your emotion. So at that level, it's you who is experiencing it, not somebody else but then how are you experiencing it? And so to me, the difference between this emptying, which leads to this openness so that you can have the creative potential arising in the experience and creatively engaging, and often by grasping and identifying, we stop that process. So there are a few new people. So I'll do my party trick. I know lots of you have seen it, but for the one who have not seen it. So let's say this is special, and indeed this actually is very special to Stephen. He really (laughs) wanted me to bring it and put it in the luggage. He loves it. But anyway, let's say it's special to me. (laughs) So it's special to me, And so because it's special to me, it belongs to me, then I grasp at it. And if I grasp at it for any length of time, two (coughs) things are going to happen. The first one, I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. And generally this is a sign of grasping, is tension. But something else even more is going to happen is that, if I grasp at this in this way, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. To me, this is really vital to see. And I would say the process of emptying is slowly ungrasping. So really seeing our hold so there can be movement. So the thing still exists, I can still use it, but there is not that tightness. And so to see that with grasping, you have identifying. The two go together. I, me, mine. It's kind of very strong. Grasping, identifying, go together. And that's why when they talk of emptying, they will talk about not-self. They will say there is no eyes, there is no this, no that. Because, in a way, we can use it, but as the Buddha says, it does not belong to me. But it doesn't mean that I cannot experience it, I cannot use it. But to see that if we grasp, we identify, and then we limit ourselves around what we identify with, and then, that's what is the most problematic, we amplify around it. And I think this is what we can notice, how quickly we can either proliferate around something, or we can exaggerate. And if you ever say, always over never, you can know you are grasping and identifying because you are exaggerating. And so in a way, is to see uh, that we can grasp in different way. We can grasp as in, I want this, and you will amplify around it. Uh, You might be surprised, I was uh, in Oxford Street. I love to shop in Oxford Street once or twice a year. So I was in Oxford Street And what did I buy? I spent an hour and a half walking from uh, Oxford Circus to Marble Arch and I bought a pair of socks and some salt which actually comes from France but I can only (laughs) buy it in England. And why did I buy that? Because actually I needed it. And I couldn't find anything else I needed so I did not. It's very interesting when you go through the shop window. But do I need it? And so in a way, the grasping, you can easily proliferate or exaggerate. I have to have this. If I have this, my life will be transformed or whatever it is. And so in a way, kind of looking to me, this is kind of like know yourself. Is actually know all. Am I proliferating here? Which would mean I am grasping, I am identifying. Am I exaggerating here? Which again means, and you can do it in a positive way, I want this, or you can do it in a negative way, I hate this. It will be the same in both cases you will amplify. So let's look first as they doing in the sutta at the self. What is a self constituted by? This is what is interesting because when there is this kind of in a way negation of self or thinking of emptying of self, there is two different aspects. One aspect is this impression that there is a self, like there is something which is me. And the way we can notice that is how we feel when we feel self-conscious. When we feel self-conscious, it's like there is something here, very strong. The next thing we can question this kind of feeling of self is when you hear something, somebody says something to you, they might say something unpleasant, and they might have said something unpleasant to you, I don't know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and you still have it. And so it's kind of like you're sitting there, and kind of like, it's like the word, the unpleasant word, is still there. So there must be a self somewhere where the word is going to stick. And so often I have this feeling that in the middle here is kind of like a pin cushion. Mm-hmm. And then whenever somebody said something nasty or unpleasant or hurtful, ping, it's kind of like there is a little kind of pin sticking, you know. And then, you know, time to time you move it So a little drop of blood. Oh, that was painful, that was painful. You know? But there is no pin cushion. And there is no place the pin can go. That's why I find so interesting about words. Words, to me, are really empty. They're just a sonorous wave. But you will hear a word, and you stick it somewhere where can we just leave it to arise consider it does it say something about me or not and then let it be and then we can do the same with different inner condition so when we think about am i grasping if i'm not grasping at this sense of self-consciousness where something can kind of agglutinate, so if that doesn't exist, what is another way I identify? And so I kind of grasp at something as belonging to me, even more that, that I am that, when it's just a condition arising, passing away. And the next thing is a thought. I mean, what is a thought? I know you have had lots of thoughts. Uh, Very likely, I hope you have less thought as the day go by. What are thoughts? They're just a little electricity in the brain. So, is electricity you? So, I mean, are you defining yourself by little electric charge in your head, in your brain, saying, This is me? I I cannot explain this whole thing, how it works, but all the... You see that in all the neuroscience stuff. But is this me? This little happening? Or is it just a little electricity arising? I can stick to it or not. And if I don't stick to it, it passes. Like all things, it will pass or are we identifying, are we grasping at a sensation? So sensation, okay, they're more there, they're really there. So, I mean, they must exist. Sensation, that must be me, but you don't have them all the time. You have them time to time. You see, in the then some tradition, you really don't do body scanning. They don't do this kind of thing. But what is interesting is that uh, when we did a book of my uh, master cousin, our teacher's teaching, uh, we asked him, you know, for a little story about his life and things of that nature. So he kind of like, he said, all right, I will tell you a few stories because generally they don't do that, but he was kind enough. And then there was a wonderful story he told us that once he had a meeting with a friend. And so he had to walk very fast for many hours. This was in the old days. You did, had little transportation. And so he kind of had to walk far and fast to kind of meet his friend. And then when he got there, he suddenly felt so ill like really, kind of really, really bad. And so he lied there, and he thought, I'm really, really in a bad shape, you know. So very, in a way, identifying, grasping, and the sensation. And then he thought, wait a minute. Where is, where, where, where can I find this pain that is there? Where is it, this pain? And then he actually did a body scanning. He just looked through the whole body, and he said, I could not find the pain. And then I felt better. (laughs) And personally, I think what was happening was that he kind of grasped, but he identified with the pain, which then added what the Buddha called the second arrow that he was so worried about it and thing of that nature that it kind of nearly exaggerated it. And then through the questioning, what is this? Where can I find it? Then he came back to what was going on. So in a way, do we identify with our sensation, maybe with an illness, Do we define ourselves by it, or do we creatively engage with it? I know many years ago I was uh, doing a month's retreat uh, in silence, and I was, you know, it was a great opportunity to do a month's retreat, and no teaching, just sitting there, and I was really keen, you know, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and sit all day, I was very keen. But then within the second day, I was ill with my stomach, which happened sometime. And then I had 28 more days, you know. And I realized if I grasped at, I have this pain in the stomach, this is terrible, how am I going to sit with this for 28 days? It's impossible. Instead, creative engagement. When, when is a pain happening? How long does it last? What is it that helped it to change? And so I would sit in meditation and then I would observe how it was there then it was not there. Then it might come back, then it might go again. I noticed that if I lie down, it was better. If I went for walks, it was better. And then like that, I was able to do my 28 days. So in a way, by creatively engaging, I could still have some pain, but not reduce myself to it. And I think this is, in a way, one of the problems with grasping, with identifying, that then we reduce ourselves to just one of the conditions that form us. We can also reduce ourselves to one emotion, that it be sadness, that it be anger, that it be fear. And fear can be so paralyzing. And fear is a survival mechanism, it's a function. I can remember when I was in Korea, we decided to do a non-sleep week. So which means you know you you sit in meditation all the time. Day and night, and I did not worry about the sitting. Actually, I was worrying about going to the bathroom at night, at one o'clock at night, because I thought because it was outside, and I thought, oh, I'm going to have a heart attack if I do this, because I used to be very afraid of the dark. And so I went to Master Kuzan. I said, Master, Master, what can I do? I'm afraid of the dark. And he said, Ask the question. What is this? I thought, okay, it's like magic. It's going to save me from the bad guys out there. So at one o'clock at night I would go out and say, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? (laughs) And then it worked. And I realized before I used to go out and immediately I had this feeling, there is a guy with a knife, he's going to get me and But then when I did, what is this, what is this, what is this, I suddenly realized, who is going to know I am here to come and get me in the middle of nowhere in Korea? <laughs> so basically, de-exaggeration, de-proliferation. So in a way, it's to see the emptying is not that we don't have a thought, a sensation, an emotion but we don't grasp at it, we don't identify with it. That's what the emptying is about. And then there is another thing I wanted to mention because this is something that is often mentioned when you talk about emptiness Then people say, oh, everything is empty, I must be empty. And then, I cannot love. Often there is this, somebody even told me once, I cannot have coffee. I cannot love coffee if everything is empty. I thought that was going a little far, but whatever. But this is in a way the idea. If we must not grasp, if everything is empty, then how can I love somebody? I think that's not what it's about. Personally, I think, actually, if we don't grasp at ourselves, if we don't grasp at the other, then on the contrary, we'll have what I call creative, wise love. Because what is interesting, when you fall in love with somebody or when you love your children or your friends or whatever, or your cat, whatever it might be, what happens? When you love something, you love somebody, you feel warm and you feel light. And I think that's a very important quality. And I think that's why there is this loving-kindness practice. Because it's very nurturing to experience this warmth, to experience this lightness. What was really sad, Uh, with my grandmother before she died, the last two years, that suddenly she lost a certain level of connection. So before she was so happy to see me, and and after that she would see me and there was no kind of like, not of this warm, this lightness she would feel when she saw me. But she still had it with flowers. So she would go in the garden, she would cut huge branches mm-hmm. with lots of bloom, and she would bring them to us. And I felt this was the way she could connect to these warmth, to this lightness. Or when there was animals, when my niece brought her a little bunny, or she would stay next to it, because I think it, it kind of enabled her for a few moments to feel that warmth, that light. And that's what love is about, to love somebody, to love ourselves. Often, we don't like ourselves. This is a bit weird. Because, I mean, if you don't like yourself, you are stuck with yourself all the time. Which, I mean, this is a little unpleasant to be stuck with somebody you don't like all the time. But what if you love yourself? I mean, you'll be warm all the time. This is an easy way to be warm and light. And then if we love others, this adds to that. But when we love others, what is it we grasp at? Do we grasp at the person? Which means that then we want to be with the person all the time. Do we grasp at the feeling the person is giving us? But if the feeling is not there, does it mean we don't love the person? So in a way, when we love somebody, what is going on? Are we grasping at the person? Are we grasping at the feeling? Or are we caring and appreciating to have this person in our life? I think this is one, one of the most beautiful we can do thing we can do to love someone else and to be loved. Because basically, you are saying to the person, I see you, I know you, I accept you. And I think this is a kind of a tremendous gift to give others and also to experience. So can we bring this creative engagement, (coughs) creative wise love to our relationship, to our children. I find this is interesting with children. Do you love the child as the child appears, Or do you love the idea of the child? I had a friend who really wanted a child. He absolutely wanted a child. And the wife was not keen on having a child. (coughs) she said all right if you really want a child then these are my you know, every year one month I go on retreat on my own you take care of the child then you do this I mean, she was very clear so he signed <laughs> okay and then he was telling me I want the child because and I thought I hope he's not putting all this on the child like there was a lot it seemed to be identification grasping at that child, what the child would bring. But fortunately, he's also a meditator and a teacher, and then when he got the child, everything changed. <laughs> and he creatively engaged with the human being who was born with certain qualities, which was connected to the father, but also connected to that child for themselves. And to me, The emptying, as I mentioned before, the emptying in terms of relationship is not about pushing the person away, I must not be attached. But more, can I meet the person for himself, herself, themselves. (coughs) To me this is creative wise love. To really see the person for themselves and not myself but of course to appreciate too because it will bring something that sharing that connecting that influencing will bring something to my life and then there was something I wanted to finish with because this is a, a strange thing in a way to grasp at. but it's something I have noticed that even the greatest teachers are not. This is where the it seems the emptiness stops. Mm-hmm. Like uh, they seem to have uh, you know emptiness of eyes and ears and this and that, but then there is one kind of emptiness which, for some reason, doesn't seem to happen. And that's always kind of uh, was a kind of a. Uh, a query for me, a kind of a question how most tradition, most teacher, not all of the teachers, but most of them will be relatively dogmatic. So here what you have is grasping at an idea, let's say, that basically my tradition my meditation, my technique, is good for me. And if it's good for me, it's the right one. And if it's the right one, it's the only one. And if it's the only one, it's good for everybody. And, I mean, my teacher, Master Kuzan, was so adamant about this, you know, that... The question, Imoko, the Wadu, this was it. Anything else, forget it. I mean, there is now, it's, uh, unfortunately, the tape seems to have disappeared. But there was this famous occasion. So my kind of master cousin, my teacher, uh, one of my main teachers in Korea, has become like a little footnote in uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Uh, which is uh, where Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg teach. Uh, It's a big center of uh, meditation in America. And in the early days, before they learned better, once Master Cousin came, uh, during their three-month silent retreat, uh, which was in the winter, If there was a big master coming around, they would invite them to join and give a talk because, I mean, if they were a great master, they must always say something meaningful uh, to the people. So they invited Master Kuzan. I was not the translator. Somebody else was a translator. who was as dogmastic as my teacher, but that's another story. And then you have, you know, the people have been kind of watching the breath, watching the body, mindfulness, you know, a month, and then here is this guy, really quite powerful, saying, watching the breath, what's the point? This is no better than being a corpse. Forget it. If you want to awaken, ask the question, what is this? So he anyway, did this for half an hour, <laughs> Then he left. (laughs) He was never invited again. They also never invited anybody else again. And then Joseph and Sharon were a little busy for a week. But personally, I thought it was good, because, you know, he kind of questioned, do I really do this or not? Is this really useful or not? But I have seen that in my teacher. I have seen it... In the Dalai Lama, I have seen it in Thich Nhat Hanh, which are really great, open-minded teachers. But this is the last place which does not seem to be empty (laughs) and connected to conditions. And it's interesting that. And why is it so? And I think this is something we have to be careful. And this is the last thing which I think will go. And it might not need to go as long as we are aware of it. And this is experience. You can only know your experience. You cannot know anybody else's experience. So if all your life you have asked the question, what is this? Well, your experience is that it's good. It works. It's a good method. If all your life you have watched the breath or all your life you have not noted your thought, it works, it's useful for you, then that's what you know. That's what you can guarantee. You can, you know, put the <laughs> this is really the Dharma, this is really the thing. And this is a way I got to realize what happens. Because a few years back, I was with a friend, uh, Lee Brasington, who teaches a jhana retreat, the meditative absorption concentration. And we both really open. We really try our most to not be dogmatic. So for two days, we talk about everything, and the jhana, and what I teach, and in the end, neither me or him could say that my method or his method was better than mine or better than his, and we could barely accept that our method was equal. <laughs> <laughs> and I realize why. Because I have not experienced it in the way he has. And he's not experienced mine in the way I have. So I think this is something we have to understand. That... Yes, we can understand that some method will work for us better than others. That I'm really convinced in that. That any method will fit about 60% of the people and then 40%, maybe 10, 20% a little bit and then 20%, forget it. I know people who really the breath is not a good idea. I know others, questioning is not a good idea, etc., etc. Even loving kindness, for some people, is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean they cannot meditate with another method. And so I think this is also important, to bring also the emptiness, the emptying, in the method you, we use, that we use them lightly. And also that we take lightly, especially when the teacher said, this is the only way to kind of a little, be careful there. And I wanted to finish with a poem from one of my favorite nuns in Korea. And who is now dead, of course, because she was uh, quite ancient already when I met her. And so I wrote uh, autobiography and now, also uh, kind of have some of her poem in this book. So that's what she says. Empty is the original mind of sentient creatures. Unsubstantial is their being. Where could a Buddha be born? Following the way, they rise to Buddhahood. Committing a crime, they fall into hell. What futile information. <laughs> Do you want me to reread it? <laughs> okay. Empty is the original mind of sentient creature. Unsubstantial is their being. Where could the Buddha be born? Following the way they rise to Buddhahood. Committing a crime, they fall into hell. What futile information. So, that's what I wanted to say today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.